Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Marcin Pierce. We are, of course, a production of PolicyForum.net at Crawford School, Asian Pacific's leading graduate policy school. Uh, Crawford School has a wide range of policy-related degrees and short courses available to you, so if you are looking to expand your knowledge and skills, you can check out our website at crawford.anu edu.au forward slash study. Now with me today in the studio is my regular co-host, Dr. Paul Verval. Paul is a research fellow at Crawford School and he's also an environmental and resource economist. Hello, Paul. G'day, Martin. Good to be here. Now, we'd like to take the opportunity to wish you all a happy new year, but for many in Australia, the new year has been anything but happy. In the past few weeks, many of us and many of you have been affected by the terrible bushfires ravaging Australia. The loss in the country is on an almost unimaginable scale. Some 27 people have lost their lives, more than 1,600 properties have been destroyed, and an estimated 1 billion animals have perished in the fires. Everyone here at Policy Forum in Crawford School is shocked and deeply saddened by what's happened and sends our Love, our best wishes and condolences to all who have been affected, and we thank everyone who has been involved in tackling the fires. It's clear that in the wake of the disaster, many people have questions about current and future policy, and as part of our efforts to contribute to informed debate, Policy Forum has launched a new in-focus section on our website, focusing on the implications of the crisis and what policymakers must do next. This episode is the first in a series of podcasts we're going to make as part of that effort. Now, Paul, tell us a little about what the last few weeks have been like for you. Well, Martin, I, I was visiting family and friends over in Perth and, and Hobart, uh, so I didn't have too much direct experience um, over, over the holiday season. But um, we came back on the on the fourth of January, and uh, like a lot of people who were coming back to Canberra and were aware of the smoke issues, uh, we brought uh, P two masks back and to share with with neighbours and, and drop off at our local shops so they could be distributed. And I guess one of the things that that I was thinking about, and in the context as well of um, supply shortages in terms of food down the coast, and also in terms of fuel, just how our very efficient supply chains are actually very vulnerable to shock. And, and how um, you know our economic systems and also households will, will need to adapt to that over time. Yeah, we've certainly seen that. Yeah. Uh, and what about you, Martin? What, what's your experience over the last few weeks? Well, I've actually been in the UK for the last six weeks. So I only came back on Friday. Um, I was looked two observations from the, a long distance. Number one was 
um, that the coverage of the bushfires was the top story on BBC TV news for the better part of a week. Every single twist and turn uh, of the story was was the lead story. A lot of people really genuinely shocked by what is happening. And the other observation I'd make is that I, like a lot of other Australians there, spent my time kind of anxiously checking the Fires Near Us app um, and keeping an eye on the news and checking in with friends. It was a, a, a difficult time for, for everybody. Yeah, that sounds uh, re- really tough. And I guess I was doing the same thing in terms of that fires near me, me app as well. And and I think, yeah, it's, it's a very, very scary thing to see from the outside. But of course, the people who are experiencing that on the ground, that's, that's another thing entirely. It's a whole other thing. Now, as we record, the fires are still burning in many parts of Australia. Federal and many state governments have made commitments to compensate fireys for their incredible work. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison is seeking state support for a national inquiry into the bushfire crisis. But in the eyes of many, this is too little too late. A comprehensive climate change policy is sorely lacking and the federal government's delayed response to the disaster has certainly raised questions for people. So today we want to ask, in an era of climate change, how can we better manage fire? in the future. Now, obviously, these are really big questions, and I'm expecting us to have a lot of ground to cover with a whole range of issues that are likely to come up. And I really want to make the most of the expertise that we've got around the table. So what we're going to do with this podcast is we're going to split it into two. So uh, this will be the first of a two-part podcast, and we'll get the second part out to you very shortly as well. Um, So without further ado, let's get into introducing our panel. So tell us a little about who we've got to share their expertise with us today, Paul. Thanks, Martin. Uh, Today joining us, we have Dr. Liz Hanna, who is an honorary fellow at the Fenner School of the Environment and Society. Uh, Liz works on the human health impacts of climate change. We're also joined by our Crawford colleague, Dr. Siobhan McDonnell, who's a legal anthropologist and lecturer here at the Crawford School. Her applied research in Indigenous Australia and the Pacific focuses on climate change, land rights and gender. And if that's not enough, Siobhan is also the lead negotiator on climate change for the Vanuatu government. Uh, we're also lucky to be joined here by Professor Jeanette Lindsay. Jeanette is a climatologist and the emeritus, an emeritus professor at the ANU Fenner School. And last but not least, Professor Steve Dovers, who's Emeritus Professor and former Director at the ANU Fenner School. Steve works on policy dimensions of climate change adaptation, disasters and sustainable development. So welcome, Siobhan. Thank you. Welcome, Jeanette. Thank you. Hello to you, Liz. Good to be here. Cheers. And hello, Steve. Good afternoon. Now, New Year's Eve 2019 was memorable for all the wrong reasons. Thousands of people across New South Wales and Victoria had to flee their homes, with some having to evacuate to beaches to escape the fires. Uh, Meanwhile, Canberra topped the charts for the worst air quality in capital cities in the world, with residents choking on the smoke. So I'd like to start this podcast by asking each of you individually, how have you experienced the last few weeks? Perhaps if we start with you, Steve. Uh, well, the, the suffering the smoke, um, being quite concerned and trying to keep in touch with friends and family who were variously defending houses or being evacuated, um, and experiencing some of the communication issues which um, many people have commented on. Um, when half a dozen mobile t- phone towers cut out, 
you have these problems and that's the sort of thing that catches us that we haven't had that extent of um, fires or loss of comms before and even though the communications are hugely better now than they were, say, in Black Saturday and actually worked incredibly well, that's those those vulnerabilities that didn't strike us. So, you know, 10-hour battery backup, but that we thought was enough. So the extent and, and nature of these fires keep always come up with a new lesson um, and people say, why didn't you think of that? And, yeah, well, we thought 10 hours was enough. We didn't think we'd have 48 hours of knocked out. Yeah. So yeah, uh, like with a lot of people, uh, fortunately in a bushfire zone but not, not part of these fires, but uh, it was a, a pretty intense New Year's Eve um, out in a fire-prone area hoping not to have to defend uh, but desperately trying to keep up on you know, people very close to you who were it was a mystery for you know a good 12 hours there was an incredible reliance on the abc particularly yes. over the period and they've got to be commended for doing a terrific job in keeping everyone up to date mm, fantastic job yeah and Absolutely. that was that was a, a an observation from the canberra 2003 fires where it was first noticed how critical mm. local abc radio was so what about you, Jeanette? How have you experienced the last few weeks? Well, we've been in Canberra. Um, I'd like to just comment that we were actually down at the coast south of Naruma in November, and I made a couple of observations then, um, which, of course, I notice what things are like as a climate person through that, that lens, and I noticed how incredibly dry it is down there. We've been visiting that coast for more than 20 years on a more or less annual basis. And that I saw. Um, I also spoke to a number of the business owners in small communities in that area um, who also, you know, were commenting on how dependent they are on the uh, tourists and the holidaymakers coming through, which of course is something that we all know. Observed a wonderful new, very fancy Woolworths that had just opened in Naruma. Um, and when the fires hit, those were the sorts of things that came back to me. And I was thinking, what, you know, what about those people? What about the, uh, dependence and reliance on, of local communities on those very limited resources that they have, depending on what we thought were adequate supply chains that have already been mentioned, but actually turned out to not work very well at all. Local producers who couldn't get their, their, produce to market, that sort of thing. Uh, so that really struck me. Um, and also the communities not affected directly by the fires, but people in Braidwood and Bungendore, for example, who have seen their trade drop to almost nothing as they've lost that through flow of traffic with the King's Highway being closed for as long as it has been a key route down to the coast. So those were things that I was reflecting on. Um, also the nature of the unique ecology that we have seen decimated in these fires. Mm. Uh, I think that's absolutely tragic. I was part of a, a greenhouse accounting cooperative research centre for a number of years and that was looking at the uh, ecological side of carbon in the environment uh, and so I got to know a bit more than I suspect many climatologists to do about how forests sequester carbon and just how the whole system, the whole ecosystem mm -hmm. works uh, as a carbon store. And we've seen a tremendous amount of that go up literally in smoke um, over this period, which is just shocking. Um, 
final observation I'd make um, also from a climate point of view, I guess, um, but also a personal concern is the health impact of the smoke. And I know that Liz is, is very well equipped to talk about that, but I, I will just comment that I've been somewhat shocked by how little many people that I know seem to be concerned about the particulate matter that everybody is breathing in at the moment. And people seem to, to a large extent to be shrugging it off. And I find that quite concerning. I know that we don't necessarily fully understand the long-term impacts of prolonged inhalation exposure to PM 2.5, small, very tiny particles in the atmosphere. But I do think we perhaps people should be a bit more aware and taking more care. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, that's definitely something that we want to pick your brains about later, Liz. But first, just give us your observations of the last few weeks. Uh, yeah, we uh, we stayed in Canberra throughout the duration. In fact, we specifically elected not to leave um, in case we did need to. You know, we were directly affected and the fires did come through. Um, and the smoke, you know, the smoke was awful. And again, particularly not being able to put on the evaporative cooler on those hot days because all that did was blow the smoke in to the house. So, you know, we ended up, A, with cabin fever um, and B, rattling around a, a hot and stuffy house, which was you know, unpleasant, uh, reluctant to go outside and not doing any cycling or anything like that. So that was not only frustrating but irritating because it did mean we had to get in the car, which adds to the problem and, you know, you sort of self-flagellate with guilt when, you, when you're doing that. Um, and also I found that the smoke was, um, you know, I, I, I felt nauseated. You know, even when I did sort of, you know, walk gently, slowly up to the gym, it was, um, you'd be sick by the time you, by the time you got there. But we've had some reflections on the 2003 fires and particularly from the health angle. Um, when, uh, when the fires were coming through Canberra, uh, they were prepared for uh, an influx of burns. Uh, what they were not expecting and did get flooded by, um, and that was um, a rash of injuries, um, particularly if people had had a bevy or two or in gum boots on their roof, hosing it down, very slippery, falling off roofs, etc. Um, and of course, that's one of the major things. So it, I think it hones back to the point of really knowing what it is that we're going to be prepared for, particularly if we want to respond. Um, and as some of our first expectations um, can be proved wrong, which can um, sort of be calamitous if if the response agencies are not are not well prepared, well informed with how we should uh, how we should manage because the the community expect us to know what we're doing. Some good observations there. What about you, Siobhan? So we had uh, a very memorable New Year's. Uh, we were caught in the fires down the coast, so. We had Christmas in Melbourne. I, f I flew back from Madrid from the climate change negotiations, um, kind of packaged everyone up in the car, went down to Melbourne for Christmas. After Christmas, we went to visit people on the Victorian coast, made the way, uh, the long way around East Gippsland, which was on fire, and carefully made our way into Mystery Bay at the base of Tilba, which was safe at the time. 
And so we had one day on the 28th of kind of calm, smoky beach, and the, the night everything became very smoky. I was keeping an eye on the app. I woke up with an asthma attack in the middle of the night and was really concerned and there was nothing being updated on the app at that point in time. In the morning it was an, a black and orange sky and so for New Year's Day I had in the back of my mind the experience of the Canberra bushfires where my family lost our house and I know that people die on roads and I know that people die defending houses. So I just wanted to make sure that road access was okay and we got out to the Naruma Evacuation Centre as fast as we could and then we bunkered down there. But we had a period of time there and because I researched disasters and climate change, I had this kind of period of cognitive dissonance of really watching local volunteers try as hard as they could to, to manage a situation that was so badly prepared for in terms of disaster management preparation. You know, you had people flooding in from all kinds of directions and then you had roads being cut off. You had very few boots on the ground in terms of firefighters relative to the scale of what was occurring. You had loss of power. You had loss of communications. Um, you had real problems in terms of food supply. Luckily, you had water. Um, the New South Wales Disaster Management Authority took 24 hours to, to hit the location, which is really interesting from my perspective of kind of looking at disaster management in the Pacific. So post-Cyclone PAM, Australian humanitarian agencies hit Vanuatu 12 hours later after the cyclone. But the timing of getting into Naruma was much longer. And then when people came because communications weren't working, the flow of information was really difficult. And what you found was similar to the Canberra bushfires, people were separated. So the evacuation centre that we were in, you had a whole range of really distressed families where some people had stayed to protect properties. Other people had been travelling down the coast for a day to pick up a boat motor and had been stopped. And so... The questioning that night was very much about, well, how do I get a message or how do I get communication flow occurring? And there, were, there was no answer for any of, any of those sets of problems because really there was that loss of, of communications. So dif difficult and yet these kind of local volunteers and this incredible cooperation that was, you know, that was going on. And so we just bunkered down and waited and watch the ash fall from the sky and watch, you know, the smoke roll in. And the great thing about Naruma is that you've got estuaries all around as well. So I was pretty confident that, you know, it was going to be, it was all going to be fine really in terms of a location. And then the roads opened up and we did, um, because I had this stuff in the back of my head, as soon as we got to Naruma, you know, in the preceding period of time, I had filled up the car. So as soon as the roads opened up, we began that very slow drive up the Brown Mountain and looked at the charred landscape and looked at the, the bodies of animals who'd been trying to flee all the way up. And I think for my little family, you know, we were not, we were not hugely impacted. We had that very short period of time, but I have one kid who has been really distressed because 
his whole world flipped, you know. He really, everything became very out of control. So the how you manage the grief of these experiences I think is something we need to have a conversation about and how we as a community come together and begin to have the conversations that we need to have about how we live in these damaged landscapes, the the way that we can communicate this to each other and to our children I think becomes really important. And for me, this is about the my scholarship and the spaces that I am active in. But I think, you know, that's something we can explore as we go. Thanks very much for that, Siobhan. Uh, that sounds like a really a harrowing experience. And I, I, I think we all really appreciate you taking the time to, you know, share, share it with us. I think it's, it's very important. I, uh, just to pick up on one of the points that you made there with regards to, to preparation and disaster management and to, to, to uh, elaborate a little bit more on policy. Now, before the, the federal election in May 2019, 23 former fire and emergency leaders in Australia warned both major parties uh, of the worsening conditions and, and the, the threat that the coming fire season posed and, and asked the next government to, to commit an inquiry into what resources were needed for, for emergency services. Now, the same group called for the federal government to lease more water bombers uh, for, for this upcoming fire, fire season and uh, the former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Chief, uh, Greg Mullins, said that the uh, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action group had, had repeatedly sought to meet with, with Prime Minister Scott Morrison in 2019, several times, and, and to no avail. Now, at last count, I think it's about uh, eight, 8 million hectares have, have burned across Australia and, and uh, a couple of thousand of houses are, are lost, untold uh, wildlife um, deaths as well. This is a major disaster, this ongoing fire season. And, and I'd, I'd like to ask you, maybe starting with you, Siobhan, do, do you think that the federal and state government have, have done enough to prepare for and, and manage these fires and, and bushfires in general in Australia? I mean, I feel like the short answer is no. And uh, so my perspective is very much informed by a lot of the international negotiating work that I do around climate change issues. And I feel like uh, these issues are very are very linked in a political uh, in a political sense. Our Australian government has been very paralysed uh, by its inability to acknowledge, until very recently, the pressing reality of climate science and therefore the implications that preceded this bushfire season. There was a whole raft of climate science that indicated that this would be because of the drought, because of of the heightening temperatures, because of the low rainfall, that this would be an incredibly bad bushfire season. And because our particular leadership at the moment are lock, have been locked into this very ideological set of policy framings around um, the importance of the fossil fuel industry, around support for Adani, which has been bipartisan, around, um, you know, questioning of, of climate science that has created uh, a dissonance around preparing adequately for the worsening bushfires that were on the horizon. So for me, the positioning that Australia takes internationally in debates and climate negotiations 
uh, that I see regularly, the kind of blocking that often happens in negotiations, the arguments around use of Kyoto credits, the line that the Prime Minister is constantly using that we're meeting and exceeding our targets when he is selectively choosing some targets over others, the way in which Australia often forms a block with the US and Brazil and is seen internationally as really as a pariah when it comes to to creating uh, global emissions targets. All of this plays out domestically in ways that mean up until recently we haven't been able to realistically set policy frameworks to adequately look at the fragility of our ecosystems in relation to climate change. We have had Uh, We have had forest and we have had landscapes that have burnt in this fire season that have never burnt before. We have lost biodiversity that rainforest, temperate rainforest, that has never burnt before, along with all of the, uh, the animal and species that are looking like they might not come back. You know, these are really critical issues that we need to grapple with. And one of the things that we need to be able to say to our leaders is that the science is not up for grabs. We need to get beyond the paralysis of this debate and start being able to have the pragmatic conversation of just transitions. You know, let's talk about the fact that in Australia, we have been obsessively uh, dependent on mining as a basis for economic growth. And let's start to talk about how difficult these political choices will be going forward. And let's move beyond a debate around the climate science. We'll talk a little more about some of the politics behind this, but I want to stay with the with climate change. Back in 2008, the Garneau Climate Change Review predicted that fire seasons will start earlier, end later, and generally be more intense. And we would start to see that by 2020. Jeanette, could you tell us a little more about the links between climate change and bushfires? Sure. It's been very clear now for decades, in fact, that temperatures have been rising globally and in Australia. There is absolutely no doubt about that. The fact that for Australia, global heating also means that it's been getting drier on a large part of the continent, not everywhere, but much of eastern Australia and the southwest um, and much of Tasmania has also been getting drier particularly since about 1970. So we've seen an acceleration of the global heating trend since the middle of the 20th century, um, and we've also seen that in Australia. When we have a hotter and drier environment, we are setting that environment up for fire. It is, in some sense, Australia's misfortune that we are geographically located as we are the continent sits squarely in the subtropical latitudes of the Southern Hemisphere. That means that while our northern fringe experiences tropical rainfall in the form of the monsoon, which is late this year, by by the way, which is also related to the trend of global heating and the fact that we've had a record hot year last year, etc., Uh, And we have our southern fringes brushed by the cold front systems, which bring rainfall. Much of Australia sits under the subtropical high-pressure belt, which limits the uh, tendency of rainfall systems to occur. And that's just a fact. And we share this with many other parts of the world. Southern Africa is in a similar sort of situation, parts of South America, the Northern Hemisphere, and so on. So 
with a hotter environment and drier, when it does rain, vegetation flourishes. And then because the rainfall is occurring on fewer days, we're getting fewer days of rain, but more rain each day when it does actually rain, as well as the drying trend, we see that vegetation dry out. And that means that you then have a fuel load and all you're waiting for is ignition. There is no evidence that I'm aware of that global heating has increased ignition sources. That's not really the point. It's more about the fact that we have a landscape that is primed to burn and to burn uncontrollably, increasingly uncontrollably, and for increasingly long periods of time. We've been reaching critical fire danger temperatures, atmospheric dryness, atmospheric humidity at very low levels and dry environments with dried out soil, dried out vegetation earlier in the year, in the season, should I say. Um, so we've been increasingly seeing that we've had fire seasons starting as early as August, being declared as early as August, which is not even summer, that's spring, it's late winter, into spring and going through into the summer. With that lengthening of the fire season, we're also seeing higher temperatures and drier conditions extending into autumn. With that lengthening of the season, it means that there are far fewer opportunities to do hazard control, hazard reduction burning, because that can only be conducted when conditions are favorable for that sort of activity. And those windows of opportunity are closing. There's one other point that I'd like to make before um, we move on from this point, And that is that with this change in the season length, it's happening not only here, but around the world, we're seeing that the seasons of the the bushfire seasons are starting to overlap in the northern and southern hemispheres. And the sort of resource sharing in terms of personnel and equipment and so on, that has been a feature of the international cooperation in fighting bushfires for decades, many decades, is actually starting to become more and more difficult to manage because of that overlap of the seasons. So is what we've seen this year the new normal? Should we expect a similar type of fire season next year? We can expect to see fire seasons like this more frequently. Whether we will see a fire season like this next year, I can't say, and I don't believe anybody can. What we will see is that fire seasons of this severity will occur much more frequently than they have in the past. If we start to approach, and I hope and pray that we never do, but if we start to approach the three degrees of global heating that we are on track for, then this will be the new normal. At this stage, we are looking, I think, at a very solid warning shot saying this is what it's like. This is what global heating means. And it's an extreme example at the moment. It will not be extreme in the future if the world continues and Australia continues on the path that we're currently on. Steve, if I could bring you into into the discussion here, if this is what we are going to see more more frequent severe bushfires in the future, and, and as Jeanette's just li- um, outlined here, uh, more of these conditions um, happening, what are some of the climate change adaptation measures that that Australia can think about from a from a policy perspective uh, to to manage the risks of these extreme bushfires? Well, with with respect to fires, because we also have. Um uh, increasing profiles of storm and, mm. and other climate-related potential disasters. Um, much of that, of course, falls to the states. 
I should say on, on Australia's inaction, there are jurisdictions at state level who've been reasonably impressive. Yeah. And one would pick out uh, Victoria, South Australia and the ACT. Um, and they, they're the main... Um, they have the primary role in emergency management and land management. So um, the emergency leaders for climate action, I would tell everyone to read it because it actually does address not just Australia should wake up to climate change, but it also addresses state responsibilities, uh, such as funding for certain agencies. And if you look at the National Parks staffing and resourcing in my own state of New South Wales, um, who then get blamed for not land- managing land. It's a bit like having your arm cut off and told you mm. can't play cricket properly. Yeah, it's outrageous. Those leaders, and I know quite a few of them, there's up to 29 now, I figure they have a 1,000 years' experience between them and were brushed off, which I, you know, I think is a bit of a shame. But in the emergency management community, which I mix with and have done for decades, climate change is accepted as part of the operating environment. You know, I've, you, you can have a thousand people in a room at an AFAC conference and someone talks about climate change and everyone just goes, yeah, yeah, well, how are you planning for that within their constrained resources? And they've been factoring that in, whether they have the resources to do what they think they'd like to do. Um, there's been over 140 post-incident inquiries in Australia in the last 10 years and that has there's been a constant evolution and if you look at what's happened this year last year and now this year you can see those improvements in practice going on what they've been worried about is out of the box situations where you don't just have one region where we can pull resources you have multiple regions over time where you don't just have critical problems with one or two roads or communication system but it's happening all over the place um, so if if this year is an indication of the future, it's precisely what the the emergency management sector, which are largely the state agencies and some of the NGOs, have been worried about and warning. And the climate, uh, the emergency leaders for climate have that's precisely the scenario they put forward. Um, what we do, um, you know, we we have a lot of knowledge of what we can do better, and a lot of it has been done better. I'm, I'm, I know a lot of the areas that were burnt and I know the, the traffic and communications in those areas over the past few weeks and I'm absolutely amazed that we didn't have hundreds of fatalities. Yeah. Um, and that's been, although there were problems, much better communications, very good in many areas response to warnings by both permanent and holidaymaker mm. residents, um, some pretty remarkable um, saves of a few settlements Mm. Um, some, you know, the improved aerial capacity. So you can see us getting better, but then we're up against something we haven't been up against before, the length of the season and the number of fires across multiple jurisdictions. And there are some instant ones that people are already talking about what we can do better. Some of them are in terms of the language and the different platforms across states. There's already a process around reviewing our fire danger rating signalling across the jurisdictions, that's happening. There's a lot already going on behind the scenes. I could see quite a lot of... There'll be a lot of pressure for more prescribed burning, but I would say better targeted. And Victoria's post-Royal Commission process of improving their program, I was one of the independent reviewers and we found it world's best practice. Now, can you do more? Possibly. Um, Do we know how to do it well in a risk-based way rather than just a a broad target, yes, we, we have systems. I think um, 
Access roads will be one that is going to come up pretty big in whatever process we have after this um, because we hadn't entertained the fact that so many, not just local access roads, but so many significant highways, well, by Australian standards, they're too windy two-lane roads. So the, the, the issue of um, vegetation around access roads, I think, will be visited and argued over quite a lot. Um, whether we're looking at lifting building standards, I'm sure that's current CRC research on urban planning I'm involved in, that's always comes up. Now we'll get into the same situation as all past fires where in a liberal democracy how much we control how and where people live, that'll be, that's one we've never really been able to crack. We've lifted our regulations. Will that have to be done again? Um, the insurance implications will come out of this one big time. Mm. Um, a lot of it will be familiar issues but just writ larger. Mm. And I think to Jeanette's point, it's like having four aces in the deck of cards. Now we might have five or six aces yeah. and that's how emergency managers look at it is, okay, we don't know what's going to happen next year but we, th we, we think the bad luck of drawing the, mm. um, one of those seasons um, and we've still got eight weeks, if not more, of the season to go. Yep. Thanks so much, Siobhan, Liz, Jeanette and Steve for this really thoughtful and insightful discussion. Now, listeners, if, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us what you reckon about this discussion and, and about the bushfire emergency in Australia, uh, please let us know. And you can get in touch with us on Facebook where we are Policy Forum Pod or on Twitter the handle is at Apps Policy Forum, or you can flick us a message on podcast at policyforum.net. Now, a lot of people want to be able to help out, and one of the key messages is that donating cash can be one of the most uh, important contributions to bringing relief to fire-affected communities. If you'd like to do that, you can check out New South Wales Rural Fire Services, uh, the Red Cross, uh, WIRES, Salvation Army, and also the Animal Rescue Collective, We'll chuck up a couple of links to all of those uh, groups in the show notes. Uh, in addition, if, if you're interested in building your knowledge on the link between climate change, fires, government policies, or want to become active on the policy front yourself, you might want to check out Crawford School's Master of Climate Change. You can find all the information you need and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Don't forget, this is the first part of a two-part discussion. Uh, we'll be back with the second part with you shortly. Uh, until then, uh, from me, Paul Verval, take care and catch you later. And from me, Martin Beers, cheerio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.